that was one of the biggest things that came out of attachment theory is that people do things for a reason. People do these things that might look illogical, but it's because this is the way that you learn to get connection. And the picture that I've used before is thinking about a plant that is put in a dark room and it grows sideways, right, towards this little crack in the window. And you wouldn't look at that plant and be like, oh, like that's a that plant is broken, right? You would say like, oh, that plant is just doing exactly what it's designed to do. It's just responding to its environment. If the light is just in this little crack in the curtain, of course it's gonna grow sideways towards the window rather than straight up towards the sun. We are just designed to try to get that connection and we'll do it in the ways that work. Welcome to the Living Centered Podcast, where we enter into honest conversations about pursuing a more centered life, rediscovering, reclaiming, and rooting in to who we truly are. I'm your host, Miles Edcox. I'm your host, Lindsay Nobles. And I'm your host, Mackenzie Vogt. Hey friends, welcome back to the Living Centered Podcast. Today, we are diving deep into attachment science. If you're like me, you maybe you have a vague understanding of what attachment styles are, how they're formed, and how they influence the ways that we connect with ourselves and others. But we are taking it a step farther today. We brought on an expert, Crispin Mayfield, who is a licensed therapist who uses attachment science in his work with couples. After years working with couples and engaging in his own story, Crispin began exploring what attachment science has to teach us about our relationships with ourselves, families, partners, neighbors, and a higher power. Throughout this interview, Crispin, Hannah, and I took a deep dive into all things attachment science. We talked about the different attachment styles, the ways that we learn really early on to get connection, and we found some empathy for ourselves thinking about attachment styles and the larger narrative of our story. Crispin also shares a little bit about the inspiration and the research that led to his new book, Attached to God. Throughout this conversation, Crispin shares how attachment science has helped him better understand his relationships and his understanding of a higher power as a Christian. But I hope that this is an inclusive conversation for everyone. We hope that if you're seeking to have a better connection with something larger than yourself, that you walk away with something today. As Crispin shares, the research behind attachment science and spirituality really does span all faiths and religion. We really enjoyed diving into this topic with Crispin, and I hope it offers you a little bit of clarity today. I hope it inspires you to lean in with a little more curiosity and connection as you go about your week. Without further ado, meet our friend, Crispin Mayfield. Hey friends, uh, welcome to a new episode. I'm so excited to introduce you to our new friend, Crispin. Crispin, will you tell us a little bit about yourself and who you are? Yeah, I am a therapist in Portland, Oregon, and I focus on couples primarily um, and use attachment science to do therapy. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a little bit. But um, I come from a Christian background, and so I've done a lot of thinking about my faith tradition and uh, the psychology of that. I have a book coming out in February this month about attachment and faith, um, the psychology of relationships and what that means for relating to God. And during the week, I am actually a therapist doing couples work at an ADHD clinic. So that's kind of where I come from and really enjoy that work. 
That's a really um, unique cross, I think, of at an ADH clinic with couples. So how do people find mm-hmm. you? And are there someone that like in the relationship, one side of the relationship has that diagnosis or what does that look like? Yeah. Um, so typically it's, you know, someone comes in because it's like these ADHD traits are causing issues in our relationship. Yeah. And a lot of times people are coming in and saying, you know, uh, can you fix my partner or <laughs> can you fix me? And so my goal is how can I help you to connect with one another Mm -hmm. in the midst Mm -hmm. of this? So there are things about ADHD that are amazing. There are things about ADHD that can be hard. And through the ups and downs, how can you two vulnerably connect with each other? So, So we're acknowledging, yeah, this is a part of your relationship. And how can you stay on the same team throughout it? I love that. I had no idea people specialized in that, to be honest, even working in the mental health field. Um, So that's a cool niche. And I bet so permission giving for people that do navigate that um, because there's obviously stigmas around mental health, there's stigmas around um, diagnoses. Mm -hmm. And we often displace like that as being an issue or being broken. But looking at how people are wired, it's really, I believe that probably feels like a giant sigh of relief for people to say like Mm -hmm. this is a part of my life and how are we integrating it in a way that I'm feeling loved and validated and finding connection through it instead of just looking at problems or things that feel broken or messy it's so cool Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. Um, you mentioned that you often use attachment theory in your work with couples and I love as I was kind of skimming through your book and getting more acquainted with your work I love that you talk about like it's patterns by which we reach out for connection And I think that feels so normalizing and it feels like a definition that I could wrap my hands around. So I'd love to maybe start there of what are attachment styles and how do they really impact the way that we connect with other people um, and impact our behavior? Yeah. So basically we, we have this drive to connect with others from a theological tradition, a lot of people would say that reflects God, a God who created and wants to be in relationship, you know, on a very pragmatic level, it's how we manage our emotions. And so, you know, when we're kids, when I'm scared, when I'm, when I'm sad, right, I just naturally reach out to my parent. And in doing that, I can kind of get my emotional balance, get my emotional footing. And so what we do is we grow up and we become people And we never lose that dynamic. We still need that person in our life to help us get our emotional footing. And so we have this drive to connect and have people close to us. And that can look a lot of different ways. And what we find is there, if you were to put all those different ways in in categories, there's three main categories. So Sometimes it means being really clingy and I need to really get you close. Sometimes it means I'm going to keep you at a distance. And that seems counterintuitive. Like, how is that keeping connection? How is that trying to keep someone close? But if you learned that when other people get too close to me, they push me away or they don't like me or they don't like my emotions, Mm -hmm. then keeping someone at a distance is better than losing them altogether, right? And so there are these different strategies that we that we initially saw with children, and then we can look and say, oh, actually, we see this happening in couples. And then I've taken that a next step further, um, standing on the research, the psychological research mm-hmm. around attachment and faith, to say, we actually see these same patterns show up with God as well. Yeah. 
That's super fascinating. I think when I first started learning about attachment theory, I really felt like I needed to box myself in with one of the three categories. And mm-hmm. yeah. I wonder, like, is that true? Do we have a propensity for one? And that's like, you know, our insecure attachment style. Or is there an adaptive way of I can actually relate to like all three of these or these are behaviors that I pull in in different contexts? What does that mm-hmm. look like? Yeah, you can. I really like to some people really think of them in terms of personality types. Mm-hmm. And I like to think about them as strategies. So mm-hmm. what strategy am I using right now? And what mm-hmm. strategy do I tend to reach for when I'm in that place of stress? And so uh, mm-hmm. when I'm feeling insecure, do I kind of back away from that person I really care about? <laughs> because like maybe if there's a little bit of distance, things can cool down and calm down and then we'll be okay. Right. Or am I that person that's like, I'm going to send you 10 text messages because uh, I'm feeling insecure and I don't know if we're OK. So I'm going to reach out to you. And, you know, or it might be that person that's like, I'm going to internally like criticize and beat myself up. Right. Mm, before yeah. you do it, before you get a chance. And so if I can like make myself feel really bad and maybe uh, catch those things before you catch them then I can be safe and keep connection. Can you speak a little bit to um, kind of the psychological growth of that? I know we develop a lot of these narratives and mm-hmm. or strategies, as you're calling them, kind of in early childhood. Um, mm-hmm. how, have you, how do you see the way that we learn as kids impact the way that we're, our, it shows up in adulthood? And yeah, like how do we rewire some of that? Is it possible to rewire that? Yeah. So first, I just want to give this caveat that uh, there are so many different things that impact our attachment styles. And so we've looked at parent-child dynamics, and those are really significant. Mm -hmm. But coming from working with ADHD folks, um, I want to Mm -hmm. acknowledge Mm -hmm. that neurodivergence, growing up neurodivergent in a world that is not on the same, not working in the same way as you. Yeah can create these things. Um, there are a lot of different things. So, you know, the the downside to this, sometimes what happens is it ends up blaming parents a lot. Yeah. And what I find is like, if this resonates with you, that that's really helpful. But it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to go digging for like, how did my parents do this? Right. But it is really early on developed. Um, and then it also, there's a big chance for it to change in your teenage years as well. Okay. Um, so those are two, and it can it can change any time in a healing relationship. Hmm. But really toddler, you know, infant toddler, and then teenage years are the two main times um, where your brain has some of that wiring that's that's going on. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, if you grow up with a parent that is there sometimes, but not there some other times, or you have to reach a certain pitch mm. uh, to get their attention, then you're going to be that kid that's clean. Yeah. That's like, all right, I, I can't go explore the playground because if I get in trouble, if I get hurt, I don't know if my dad's going to be paying attention to me. So it's better for me to just sit here and put my hand on his arm, mm. right? And uh, and that way I know I can stay connected. But mm. then think about another kid who – so and this would be an anxious attachment style. 
And so that then you grow up into a person that's like, all right, I, as long as we're having that connection, mm-hmm. um, then I know we're okay. So if there's distance, if you want to go spend your own time, like, I'm going to really worry, like, are you okay? Are you there for me? Is the connection okay? Right. Are that we reassurance. Okay? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And so, so then you look at that piece of like, I need constant reassurance because I couldn't really trust, like, if you're away from me, do you actually care about me? Am I worth mm. your attention? I don't know if I'm worth mm. your attention. So I have to get really loud or big or send up a flare, right? And so then I get into this pattern of every time I need your attention, I go straight to zero to 10 because mm-hmm. I don't know if I go to five if you're going to tune in to me. Yeah. Right? Mm. And so that's – Again, what it looks like in childhood, but it's also what it looks like in adulthood. And mm-hmm. so it can also be a self-perpetuating thing because if you're always going to 10 all the time, other people will start to tune you out, mm. right? They're like, oh, you're overwhelming. You're too much. Like, I can't handle this. And so then they tune you out, which actually reinforces like, oh, I really do have to get loud or else people aren't going to pay attention to me. And so when we talk about changing those dynamics, it really takes like a different relational experience, usually an intentional relational experience to change that because it does tend to be create its own cycle that's self-perpetuating. So there's responsibility on your end of like understanding how you relate to other people. But I think there could be an understanding on the other side of the people that you're in relationship with to understand the ways that you're wired too. Am I understanding that correctly? Yes, definitely. And I, I would just add um, that's emotionally focused therapy, which is uh, what I'm tra- have advanced training in is really the shoulders that I'm standing on. And this is what we see with couples, where the the other person is like, "Oh, I can't see that you feel insecure." I just see like a lot of noise Mm. (laughs) and it seems like you're mad at me all the time because that's a lot of the ways that it plays out is like, I can't believe that you forgot to pick up the milk. Like I asked you to pick up the milk. Do you not care about me? Like, do you not think about me? Do you not care about the things I say? And the other person is going to get defensive Mm. and it's going to be hard for them to say like, oh, I see you're really upset. I want to reassure you. I do care about you. Right. Mm -hmm. That takes some intentionality and, And that's the work that we do in therapy is like, oh, like, yeah, your partner, you feel like you're being really vulnerable and sharing your insecurity, but your partner just sees a lot of criticisms coming from you. Yeah. Uh, Man, I feel like it's a a vulnerable thing um, to think about, you know, relationships I've done that really well Mm -hmm. in and relationships I haven't. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, and and it makes sense. And I give my younger self permission that like I that's what has had worked for me, you know, like Mm -hmm. either I'm pretty uh, I tend to be avoidant. And so I could Mm -hmm. put people out at an arm's distance and then get aggressive (laughs) with things or whatever. And so um, I think it's. It's just, I love that you gave it the context of that anyone at any stage can heal if they're in the context of a healing relationship. Um, yeah. I just was going to say to pause here for a minute before we go to that next style. I really like what you said about validating that. Like, there's a reason I do this. Yeah. And that was one of the biggest things that came out of attachment theory is that people do things for a reason. People do these things that might look illogical, 
but it's because this is the way that you learn to get connection. Yeah. And the picture that I've used before is thinking about a plant that is put in a dark room and it grows sideways right towards this little crack in the window Mm. and you wouldn't look at that plant and be like oh like that's a that plant is broken yeah right you would say like oh that plant is just doing exactly what it's designed to do it's just responding to its environment if the light is just in this little Mm. crack in the curtain of course it's going to grow sideways Mm -hmm. towards the window rather than straight up towards the sun yeah and i think Mm -hmm. that's true with people the the founder of attachment theory john bowlby said if you look at a kid that's quiet and getting their needs met, that's exactly what they are designed to do. If you look at a kid that is not getting the connection or attention they need and they're throwing a fit, that is exactly what they're designed to do, hmm. <laughs> right? Like we are right. just designed to try to get that connection and we'll do it in the ways that work. I love that. I think hmm. it's um, just like you're doing the best you can with what you have. And and it's been such a permission mm-hmm. slip, I think, in my own personal therapeutic journey of just having grace and empathy and compassion for myself to say, hey, this makes sense the way that maybe I don't like the behavior that I've been exhibiting or the patterns or the narratives that Mm -hmm. I continue to get caught back up in. But taking a step back and saying, I did the best I could with what I had in that season and now I know better and I can do better. But it also, I think, has given me a lot more compassion and grace and and implementing it in my other relationships to operate with the assumption that people are doing the best they can with what they have in any moment. And can I call them to hire? Yes. But also they may be that sideways plant that's doing a really great job in the context of who they are and their story. Yeah, that was one of the most healing things for me as I went through my training Mm -hmm. in emotionally focused therapy, which is this attachment-based therapy everybody's always saying, of course, all the time. Like, of course you feel that way. Of course you do that. And I just love it so much. Like to use that milk example, yeah. right? To turn to that person and say, of course you get so angry when he forgets the milk because it hits on this pain in you of like, I don't know if he cares about me. And if mm-hmm. your choices are between acting like it's no big deal or letting this person know this really hurts because you mean so much to me, of course you're going to mm-hmm. get angry and let them know like this isn't okay. And then we go into like, and it like doesn't work very well because it comes across as accusations. Mm, Then then the other person gets defensive and it goes on from there. But to be able to validate, like there is a reason you're doing this. And if we can slow down and explore Mm -hmm. that with empathy and compassion, maybe we can find a way together to talk through what does it look like to do this better while still getting your needs met. Mm. Yeah, that's good. I wonder if there's any way you can help lead us in some baby steps for maybe people that this is bringing up some things for them. Mm, um, saying like, oh, wonder, I, I, maybe I should pay more attention to this or maybe I'm noticing this. We kind of have a whole program called Healthy Love and Relationships that focuses a lot on attachment. Um, mm, and mm-hmm. it focuses a lot on people. It's a big invitation for people that um, maybe see disruptive patterns in relationships that they want to change or they keep finding themselves in the same type of um, either toxic relationships or relationships that harm them. And so um, looking back at the attachment pieces. So what would you, what would kind of be like a next baby step for someone that is maybe noticing like, Hey, I need something to be different. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. how, how would you help them start with themselves? Um, Because I think something I'm worried about in 
relationships of all kinds, romantic, friendship, partner, family, all of it, is we often displace that on the other person. Like yes. if, if they are better or maybe if I have a healthier partner or whatever, and those all, those all help. Yeah. Um, right. But if we mm-hmm. don't assess the what's going on with us first, we can't bring our healthiest self into that yeah. partnership right. or friendship. So where would you direct people to start that work? Right. Yeah. Yeah. To your point, you know, if, if they would just remember to bring home the milk, then I wouldn't feel this way. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Yeah. Then it wouldn't bring up these feelings of insecurity. And so Uh to, to do some of your own work to understand what's the vulnerable feeling here and how can I share that vulnerably? And those Mm -hmm. are two parts that can be hard and require some work. Right. So it's easy. It's easier often to get mad. Right. And say like, if you would do this differently, then I wouldn't feel this way. And the, the alternative to that is like, oh, I'm like, when you forgot the milk, it brought up this real like deep insecurity in me of feeling like I don't matter to you. And I know part of me knows that's not true. I know that's not what you're trying to do, but I wanted to share that with you. And that allows the other partner to be like, baby, it's okay. Like you do matter to me. I just, it just slipped my mind, but I'm really glad you told me about this feeling. Mm Mm-hmm. And so to be able to share that and, and a lot of times it really does come down to like, yeah, like here's what I'm feeling and sharing it in a vulnerable way will naturally, the other person will naturally be able to, to respond in a way that's positive. Like I don't have to teach my couples how to respond to each other in positive ways. It's just that there are things that get in the way. So the way that I'm mm. saying this comes across as an accusation. Yeah. So it's really hard yeah. for you to come to me with empathy mm. in that moment. Yeah, that's good. I feel like what I hear out of that is that there's so much power in our language and shifting to sharing vulnerably instead of sharing defensively um, really is such an invitation to connection. I think Mackenzie told me this phrase, but it's been a helpful one for me. <laughs> it's like just a quick example of like, hey, get off your phone. And instead yeah. of saying that, saying something like, hey, when you're on your phone, it makes me feel like I don't have your attention and that mm-hmm. that hurts me or whatever mm-hmm. it is. And so giving the quick eye statements to say, when this happens, this is what comes up for me. And I think even disclaiming that I had a conversation with my partner last night where I said something. I said, I know this isn't true, but this is how that made me feel. Mm-hmm. And for him being able to look at me and say, like, that sounds like that would really hurt. Like, mm-hmm. and I'm glad you know that's not true, but I, I don't like that that made you feel this way. So let's work on, let's work on that together, you know? And right, so the yeah. I statements is such an invitation to connection, which I love. I love the I statements. I think that changes everything and you're seeing vulnerably into our lives. Like mm-hmm. I shared that with Hannah from like <laughs> a really tangible example in my life. But another thing that another I statement taking that a little farther is I've started using like the story that I'm making up is because mm-hmm. you're right. Like I know that you're probably not, I can have generous assumption here, but the story that I'm making up is you genuinely don't care about me. Like you were saying, like, Mm -hmm. I feel like you don't pay attention to me. I -hmm. feel like my priorities are not important to you or whatever. And so those are two pieces that I just have really started to, to relate with. I think a question that I have with a lot of this conversation is how do we recognize someone's attachment, recognize our own attachment, and where is the line between I'm dependent with someone and I'm codependent with someone? Mm-hmm. And I'd love for you to speak into that, Crispin, because I don't know what that looks like. And I would make up that there is some propensity for certain types of attachment styles to lean more into codependency. Mm-hmm. Well, and it really, 
That's such a good question. And it really kind of depends on the relationship in some ways Mm -hmm. about what that looks like. And so Mm -hmm. generally my approach working with couples is this is your person and Mm -hmm. this is the person for you to lean on. Right. And so, but what we, what we think about in terms of codependency versus interdependency, codependency Mm. is I'm expecting you to anticipate my needs without me having to say it. That is generally what codependency looks like. Interdependency is I'm going to share vulnerably with you this thing and you're going to respond to me. And within that, that interdependency looks like a being with in the emotion. It doesn't mean that your partner has to prevent you from feeling that way. That would be that codependency. Mm. So I mentioned before, right, I work with ADHD couples. So a lot of times it's like, well, you know, so some typical ADHD symptoms are having trouble paying attention in conversations, forgetting things, um, having a hard time organizing things, right? And so mm-hmm. one partner might be like, yeah, if you could just remember everything I tell you and pay attention, right, then I would, then I would know that <laughs> yeah. you really care for me, right? right? Yeah. And kind of saying like that just probably isn't very realistic. And so yeah, when yeah. that happens – how do you two connect in that emotion? So codependence would say, stop stop doing that behavior because it's making me feel this way. Yeah. Interdependence is, right now I'm feeling really insecure because this thing came up and I just need to know that you care about me and that I matter to you, right? And for that mm-hmm. other partner to be able to say, oh yeah, I do, like let me give you a hug, let me, whatever way that feels reassuring, And on that topic, um, interdependence and codependence, co-regulation, which is bringing your emotions to someone else and having them say, yeah, that makes sense, is one of the most effective ways to to regulate our emotions. And so we focus a lot on like, what's the self-talk I can do? What's like Mm. the coping skills I can use? Those are all helpful, but I also want to throw that one in the ring that when you have... And you probably experienced that, right? Where it's like, I had a really hard day and I just had a friend or a partner or a parent that was like, oh, that sounds really hard. And then it's like, oh, like, I feel different. I feel better now. Hey, friend. If this conversation about attachment science is resonating with you and bringing to light some of the ways your earliest framework for relationships might not be serving you so well, I want to tell you about Onsite's Healthy Love and Relationships program. As humans, we're all wired for connection. But unfortunately, many of us did not get our most basic emotional needs met in our earliest development. And when we don't get our emotional needs met, we start to look to other relationships to fill those needs, resulting in harmful and hurtful relationship patterns that we repeat over and over. At OnSite, we say we repeat what we don't repair. So if we don't find that space to explore what's behind the unhealthy patterns, we'll continually find ourselves in them again and again. Honestly, I don't know anyone who wouldn't benefit from this program. We're all in relationships of all kinds, and we want them to be the healthiest they can be. Health starts with us. But this program might be especially right for you if you find yourself in those cyclical, destructive patterns again and again. Or if you're the type of person who dives headfirst into relationships, even to your own detriment. Or maybe you're that guarded, self-protective person that you don't want to be in your most important relationships. 
the Healthy Love and Relationships program provides you the tools you need to work through whatever issues are getting in the way of you and your relationships, and it will help you create a healthy self-care plan to move forward. If you want to learn more or connect with our admissions team, you can email them at admissions at onsiteworkshops.com or give us a call at 800-341-7432. I think the power of co-regulation is so healing and there's so many ways to tap into that. I love um, at Onsite, we really utilize nature as a big Mm -hmm. source of healing. And so um, even getting outside or getting with an animal, we have horses on our campus Mm -hmm. and just even animals and babies ability to help us regulate our emotions. And uh, yeah, in an interdependent way where we can share that, not a codependent, I need you to solve my emotions. But when you can enter into a relationship where you're sharing this emotion with somebody, how it it just heals us because we're not wired to like heal singularly alone. Like mm-hmm. we are wired to heal in community. So whether that be in a partner in the social community and friendship in, in that. And so when you get a chance to see health and connection in connection with somebody else, I think that's where like true, true healing can come from. Mm-hmm. Um, Crispin, yeah. I'd love for you to share um, at Onsite, we are faith inclusive, meaning we welcome all and celebrate all faith backgrounds and belief systems or lack thereof and just recognize that everyone has a different experience with a higher power. Um, and you shared a little bit about your faith background and the work that you've been kind of working on in your new book about how all of this relates to how you view a higher power. Um, and I find that really interesting because I think a lot of us have a really unique view in connection to our higher power. Some of us have really harmful or hurtful views to a higher power. Um, Maybe one that we had growing up taught us to be fearful or taught us to like over serve or people please, or we had to do good. Um, So I, I make up that a lot of people listening, if they have a connection to a higher power may have a unique relationship to it and may need some permission to reevaluate um, our attachment to that higher power. And I'd love for you to share a little bit about your research on that and kind of how you see the connection between attachment theory and spirituality. Yeah, definitely. It really started out looking at babies and how they connect with parents. And uh-huh. I was like, oh, this actually, like, looking at my faith tradition and my faith community, I'm like, I feel like there's some, like, parallels here, you know? And so that was kind of where it started. But as I got into it, I found out that there actually is a lot of research that's been done around Mm -hmm. higher power and attachment and how it does activate the attachment system in our brain just the same as the person in your life. And um, It's wild. Yeah. And speaking of being inclusive, there really is a lot of research about monotheistic religions like Christianity, Islam, Judaism. Um, But there's actually also some around uh, Buddhism and pantheism. And um, so if uh, reading research papers is your jam, there is a (laughs) lot of a lot out there. But it was really neat to see, okay, this isn't me just, um, you know, theorizing. This actually is something that's been researched. And, you know, this happens within faith communities and church communities, but working in actually a, a broad variety of communities, I found that there are so many people, whether they're religious or not, whether they've set foot in a church or not, there is that dynamic of, 
of a higher power and a relationship with it. And there are some people out there that are, you know, I'm, I'm just an atheist. I think that what I see is there is, you know, that I want to make room for that. Um, but there are lots of people that I know that have never set foot in a church. They're like, yeah, God has been punishing me my whole life, you know, and what's the impact of feeling like God is always angry at you and God is not on your side. And, you know, you think about like, living with a partner like that, what would that be like, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And so you're living with this deity in your head with it, that same sort of dynamic of, you know, you're doing it wrong. You should be better. You know, I'm upset with you um, and mm-hmm. I'm going to punish you for the bad things you've done. And I've seen mm-hmm. this a lot with people that are experiencing poverty and a lot of trauma. I've heard that in my yeah. office of like, because it just, it, Again, it, you don't have to get that information from the church for the broader culture to tell you, right, that like people, God is in control and people get what they deserve. And so mm-hmm. if you experience a lot of trauma or pain or that sort of thing, then it, you know, it just makes sense within this kind of broader cultural understanding of God to say, oh, yeah, like God doesn't like you. And what I loved when I was like reading through your book, I felt, one, it felt like a little bit of a breath of fresh air if I'm just being totally transparent with a lot of the Mm. distorted ways that I like want to relate to God versus the way that maybe my upbringing or the narratives from the big C church or the different faith expressions that I've had have really narrowed into perfectionism, striving, shame, Mm -hmm. like all the different Ways And I think I have often gotten a distorted view. And so there were so many things that you were saying. I think what we take as commonplace within the broader understanding of God, of like God is punishing you. And so I think marrying your psychological background and your understanding with attachment into faith was just such a breath of fresh air. So thank you for doing that. But will you tell us how maybe the different ways that we see the world through our attachment style does give us why you believe it gives us a distorted view? of God. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, there's this, you know, we we talked about that anxious attachment piece and people have this with God where it's like, it's up to you to keep connection. Mm -hmm. It's up to you to make sure that God stays close. And so that can be really exhausting. It's, you know, again, using that picture of the infant who's like, I'm going to sit here and cling on to mom's skirt rather than explore the world. And literally, not literally, (laughs) but very close to literally, (laughs) that happens to people where it's like, I'm so worried about my faith and holding on to my faith that I can't explore who I am. I can't explore my community or learn things. It's like, I'm so Mm -hmm. focused on my spirituality and not spirituality in a life-giving way, but in a, in a, like, I need to hold on to this with white knuckled grip, (laughs) right. To make sure Mm -hmm. that I keep that connection with God that's what it can look like. And, you know, that can look a lot of different ways. So for some people, it's like, I need to never miss mass. Uh, In my upbringing, it was in evangelical upbringing. It's like, you have to have your quiet time every day. For some people, it's like, I need to continually confess uh, my sin. For other people, it's like, I need, you mentioned this before, I need to be serving or I need to be like Mm -hmm. an activist or like involved in justice. Um, or else I'm going to lose that connection with God. And so these are all things that can be helpful, but when it comes down to 
this is actually what my relationship with God is dependent on. Mm -hmm. That's where that anxious attachment comes in. Yeah, that's really eye-opening about how a lot of us navigate the world, whether it be with a higher power or a source of nature or karma or whatever it is Mm -hmm. that we kind of assume these things um, based off of how we also view relationship. We've talked a lot about um, anxious attachment and uh, what some people call avoidant attachment. Uh, What would be examples of secure attachment in both relationships and in connection with a higher power? Um, Obviously, that's going to look really different for Mm -hmm. people, but what could be some hope of um, checking in to notice secure attachment within yourself and with those you're connecting with? Yeah. Well, we've talked a bit about that today, which is that vulnerability piece. Um, What that looks like in children, in infants, is I can go do my own thing, and I know that when I'm upset or I get into trouble or I need a diaper change, I know that mom will be there. And so I don't need to fill my brain space with, like, how am I going to keep this connection? And so with adults, this looks like that person that's, that isn't always worrying about, are we okay? Are we okay? Are we okay? <laughs> they can get close. They can, they can say what they need from a vulnerable place. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the, the avoidant is kind of on the other end of the spectrum of like, I don't need anyone. But actually what happens there is there's some anxiety. What if I get too close and I say what I need? You know, are other people going to see that I'm weak? Are they going to see that there's something wrong with me because I feel this way? So I'm just going to keep my emotions to myself and I'm just going to like, you know, go out in the yard and work on a project. <laughs> um, and so, and these aren't always gendered, but um, but just the way that our society raises girls and boys yeah. and our gendered assumptions, like it, there is a lot there around um how that can can show up. And then the third type? Yeah, the third type is, yeah, thank you, is disorganized, mm-hmm. um, or I call it shame-filled. And that's where it's like, I, it's, it's kind of a combination of both of those. Mm-hmm. I want to be close, but I'm afraid that if I get too close, you're going to see me for who I really am. Yeah. And, um, and then you'll reject me and I'll lose connection. And that sounds really similar to the avoidant, but the avoidant person is someone that's like, I'm fine on my own. They've so disconnected from that need for connection that they generally feel pretty good. They're like, yeah, I don't mind just being by myself. The the way that it shows up in their life is the people around them that are like, I feel like I don't know you. I don't feel connected to you. Mm-hmm. So that's that avoidant piece. The The shame filled is like, there's something broken about me. And so I want to be close to you. But at the same time, I'm afraid that if I get close, you'll see how broken I am. And that's a really tough place to be because you're, you're really caught between that drive for connection and that drive for safety. Mm. If I get close to you, that's dangerous. But if I'm far away from you, then I lose the connection. Interesting. And I would love to hear just curiosity. Is there one of these three as you were writing the book and even before you're writing the book, as you're exploring these concepts that you really resonated with? Did you feel like you had more of an anxious relationship with God, an avoidant relationship or a shame filled Mm. relationship? Yeah, I really resonated with the shame filled Mm -hmm. and I've done some reflection on that in about like where is where does this come from? But yeah. a lot of it is what I found very interesting 
is that those who've experienced attachment trauma that have this shame-filled way of relating, they these are people that have um, experienced emotional abuse. These are people mm-hmm. that, um, you know, kids that have experienced emotional abuse or gone through foster care system have some significant trauma there. And the feeling that comes up for them is it feels like there's something at my core that's broken or disgusting that drives other people away. Mm. And if I could just change that, then I could keep other people close. But at the same time, it's just kind of who I am. Mm. And so that really struck me because then I reflected on my upbringing. Mm -hmm. And I grew up in an evangelical church where I was told, your heart is dirty and black and broken and because it's sinful Mm -hmm. and God can't stand you. And so it just makes sense that I would have this feeling of like, you know, it, it kind of felt like Jesus slipped me in the back door of like the party mm. and like God who hates sin and I'm sinful still doesn't really want me there, mm. but Jesus like kind of, you know, snuck me in the back door and that doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel comfortable. It doesn't feel like you belong or I got messages of like, God loves you, but God is really disappointed in you. And mm. one of the things that actually the psychology bears out is that our security, that feeling of security comes from being delighted in. So it doesn't mean you have to be an on parent all the time, but it's that thing like when your kid comes home from school, right? Do your eyes light up and they can feel that. They can feel like, oh, you know, mm-hmm. dad really likes me. Dad's glad I'm here. And so when we don't have that with God, when we don't have that sense of like, yeah, God really likes me, but it's more like God puts up with me or God God is just sort of bearing with me. It does create this feeling like there's something about me that's broken. Like if I was just a holier version of myself, a better version of myself, then God would like me. But I can't actually get that closeness and connection until I become a better person. Yeah. I was going to ask a similar question, so I'm glad you went there. And thanks for sharing that. That's a vulnerable thing to share. What do we do with that? I think, like, I think a lot of people probably carry around a similar narrative. I think a lot of, from what I know of different religions, a lot of religions and faith concepts stem from that belief of uh, we need to be saved and we are messy or we are broken. And a lot of us also carry around that belief from relationships and parenthood or romantic partnerships. Mm -hmm. Um, And so how do we begin to take baby steps towards shifting our narrative around that or giving ourselves permission to say, Hey, maybe we got that wrong. Maybe that's Mm -hmm. actually not how people view us, how our higher power views us. Um, How do we begin to rewrite some of that? Cause that's heavy and that's ingrained in our bodies yeah. um, that we carry mm-hmm. around that shame. Like, cause you're saying it's, tr- it's actual trauma. And I think people dismiss it sometimes because it's not necessarily always comes through a traumatic event, but that, that belief system that we're messed up, that we're broken is what keeps so many people back from doing the work they deserve from having healthy relationships that they don't, that they aren't worthy of that cause they're messy. So how do we take baby steps and dismantling that? whole thing the whole message <laughs> right yeah that light small thing about our messed up world uh, right yeah well the the understanding why that those messages are so powerful is also points us to that path of healing mm-hmm. 
So our attachment system is very experiential and it's very right brain image focused. So that's why getting statements, right, doesn't change the way that we feel or change the way that we relate to others, right? You can have a lot of information. For example, you can be told, okay, God loves you. But it's those powerful metaphors of, you know, if you grew up like me, like the dirty wash rag, right? Like, we're going to put dirt on this. And here's this metaphor we're going to show the five-year-olds to help them understand what they really look like on the inside. Mm. And so knowing that those pictures and metaphors are so powerful, we need to find better metaphors and more healing metaphors. There are so many... And I write about a few in my book that have been helpful for me. But one that comes to mind is Mr. Rogers, um, who was an ordained minister. I tongue-in-cheek call him my favorite televangelist. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But he actually was ordained and went into uh, making his TV show. And I think about what he says all the time of, I like you just the way you are. Mm. And for me, it's been like, okay, what would it be like if if I could take that in, if I could sit with that, that maybe he's he is speaking on behalf of God? Or for sometimes it's thinking about, you mentioned this earlier, like a pet mm-hmm. or an animal or a friend that really likes you. In fact, actually, <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned this. My daughter, who's 11, woke up this morning and she was like, Baba, that's what she calls me. Baba, I just really love you. She's yeah. like, do you think I love you more? Do you think God loves you more? She's like, I'm not sure, which was really sweet. So and sweet. I told her, I was like, oh, yeah, I was like... You know, actually, the way the way that you love me, and even more so, the way that I love you, has given me a really good idea of how God feels about me, mm. and the way that I feel about my daughter, who, of course, like doesn't get everything right all the time, and as any parent can attest to, can be frustrating, etc. Right? Like, there's just this deep love that I have for her, and that wasn't a love that I was communicated to me about God growing up, but I mm-hmm. can sit with that and say, okay, if if I'm a parent and I'm just one parent, normal human, right? Mm-hmm. And I believe that God is a divine parent that cares about me in a similar but better mm-hmm. way, mm-hmm. right? That gives me something concrete to hold on to. But yeah. it can, you know, I also think of my friend Mark, who's just this guy that I met through an abuse recovery program. He's older than me and we meet for coffee and like, it's just this, I can just feel Mm. that he likes being with me, that he Mm -hmm. likes me. And so that's sort of an attachment system hack uh, (laughs) to think, all right, like God isn't in front of me. God isn't you know, giving me these nonverbals, mm-hmm. but maybe there are people in my life that I can reflect on that around thinking, yeah, what if God felt the way that Mark feels about me or my daughter feels about me? Yeah. We at Onsite, um, and I'm, it's not new, I'm sure it's said elsewhere, but we often say like we're wounded in community and so we have to heal in community. Mm-hmm. And so I love that other people being agents of healing um, and kind of mirroring back to us our own lovability or our own like beautifulness. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that was 
uh, a huge piece of my own work when I did a program at Onsite um, around, I kind of had this narrative. I, I'm a avoidant attachment. And so I, I have this narrative that if I let people close, it's probably shameful too, but if I let people close that they will leave me and I'm not lovable. And so that was kind of a big piece of what I worked through was that I'm not lovable and having these strangers that became my family in this group process mm-hmm. this workshop we did it on site repeatedly tell me I'm so loved and I still I get text messages from people in my group randomly that just say like you're so mm-hmm. lovable and that doesn't mm-hmm. fix it all the time like I have to learn to be self-compassionate and self-loving to myself but they were a great model and just holding up the mirror and saying like do you see what I see can you can you see how good you are and so how we have to be able to receive that mm-hmm. and be open and willing to say like Yes. Because if I said like, no, if I wouldn't accept it, and it was super vulnerable, I would like be bawling and be like, okay, I'm lovable. But it's scary. It's really scary scary. to let people love you. And it's scarier probably to love yourself. And so that's what I was thinking. I think so much of that work, we do heal in community, but sometimes we need community most just to show us ourselves and say like, do you Mm -hmm. see you? Um, And then how that can help us heal all things so our relationships our connection with the higher power all of it yeah definitely that is so beautiful thank you for sharing that i think that's right on in terms of how healing happens and i think it's both like it can't just be those people it has to be me Mm -hmm. it has to be right Mm -hmm. my understanding of a higher power whatever like all of those pieces all those resources i have to tell me i'm included in that I can't just let right. those outside things. They can't just be, I have to agree and pursue that for myself first, you know? And I think that's right, where we yeah. get stuck. Yeah, I've been thinking that this whole conversation that so much of this attachment work is like an invitation into curiosity and an invitation into self-connection because what we mm-hmm. say at Onsite is that you can't connect with someone else until you're fully connected to yourself. Like it's impossible <laughs> to seek out the connection outside of mm-hmm. you if you're not, you know, connecting in with yourself. And so I think it's, so beautiful that this is such a holistic conversation of I can pull from all the resources I have. I can pull. We do that a lot at Onsite. We ask people to list out their resources. And part of that is, do you have a higher power? Do you have something that you feel like is bigger than yourself to speak into this? And then, you know, what are the attributes in yourself that you've seen um, help you through those those hard days. So like one of mine was like, I'm super resilient is what I wrote. Like that is something in my backpack. I have resiliency. I've made it through every day. You know, here's my higher power. And then here's mm-hmm. what someone who loves me, who I think I could bear my, you know, most true self and the ugliest parts mm-hmm. of myself. And here's what they would say is true about me. And then we use that throughout the week to come back to, to say, okay, what is true? Mm-hmm. And so it's such a holistic Care And from an attachment perspective, the reason that we criticize ourselves and we can't love ourselves mm. is because it's like, well, here are the things that I learned in relationships aren't acceptable, right? I'm too much or I'm too needy or whatever it is, right? And so then we learn like, all right, I can't accept <laughs> that about myself. I have to, you know, if I can hate that about myself, maybe I'll change it. Yeah. And so then we get into relate healing relationships where someone's like oh yeah like I know that about you and I still like you or maybe it's even I like that about you and then it's the work of helping our brains catch up Mm. of like oh you don't have to hate that part of yourself anymore you're you're hating that part of yourself to try to keep connection 
But actually, that's not the key to connection. Mm. What we'll do to keep connection is a yeah. lot. There's a lot. I, I think that's what I've learned in my story. Mm-hmm. Of, but like, I will do a lot as to not break any kind of connection, even if it's betraying myself. Yeah, I think um, some of that need for repetition is really important. Mm. I think... I don't remember the science because I am not a scientist or a researcher, but somewhere I learned that our brain just attaches to bad things very easily. We attach to bad memories. We attach to trauma. We attach to um, hurtful things people say really easily. And it's hard to unwire those. And our brain doesn't attach to good stuff as easily. And so we have to really put it into effort or concentrate on it or have it be repetitive for our brain to fully understand it and form to it. And so we can't have uh, one healing comment from somebody. I can't agree that I love myself once to start to form these pathways. Um, Mackenzie's used this example of like a sledding path, how the more we go down something, the the easier and faster it is to go down that pathway. Um, And so when we have these negative pathways, we're going to go down it really fast, but we need to forge Mm -hmm. these new pathways that our brain starts to agree with to say like this is true this is normal um and so how you think that's even vulnerable in relationship to to have to engage with Mm -hmm. it often to have to reopen Mm -hmm. it to have to ask for it and so just encouraging people that it's not you do it once and now you're you're good to go it's like we have to be bold and courageous securely attached yeah we have to be bold and courageous Uh to keep working on it and it's going to be a lifelong experience that we're always going to have to continue to look for and hope for that's good han that's real good yeah. Oh, well, Crispin, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been such a really beautiful conversation, and I'm just so grateful for the way that you view the world and that you are helping people connect to themselves and to God and uh, just everything through the way that you view the world. And so we're thankful for your perspective, and we're thankful for you joining us and your heart and your willingness to show up vulnerably. Thank you so much. I just really appreciate the investment and questions you asked. I'm doing a lot of these, and this has been one of my favorite ones. I really appreciate the work that y'all are doing, and I'm just really honored that you had me on for this conversation. Yeah, we're so grateful. I think it will be such an eye-opening conversation. We hope it's an eye-opening conversation for anyone listening and um, that everyone can pull pieces that they relate to and and connect with it in a way that makes sense to them um, and that there's permission Mm -hmm. for them to put in a new word, put in a substitute for whatever is going to help them connect with um, attachment both to themselves, others, and whatever they feel safe with in a higher power conversation. So really grateful for that gentleness you led us with. Thank you for listening today and for committing valuable time to share space with these powerful stories. Make sure you hit subscribe to get all of our inspiring conversations with these incredible people delivered directly to you. And if you found this conversation particularly impactful, consider supporting the show by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. When our emotional health is suffering, many of us begin to feel alone and overwhelmed. If you're in that place right now, we deeply encourage you to ask for help. If OnSite can support you in connecting the dots with one of our programs or other offerings, our admissions team would love to connect with you. Simply call 1-800-341-7432 or visit onsiteworkshops.com.